one of the things about the affordable housing space, that workforce housing space, is the profile, those cash flow profile and attributes. It's a great diversifier to some of our other residential investments in the portfolio overall. And so that's really a part of the portfolio construction is to have that. And so the affordable housing, workforce housing strategy is a great diversifier to have in your portfolio. And I would add affordable housing is not just a U.S. issue. This is definitely a global issue. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Real Estate Capital. I'm your host, Nancy Lachine of Park Madison Partners. Park Madison is a capital solutions and advisory firm serving the global institutional real estate business. Our job is to build relationships between real estate managers and their capital partners. Capital is the lifeblood of the real estate industry, but the decisions on where and how it's allocated are driven by people and personalities. Who are they? What motivates them? What have been their biggest successes and lessons learned throughout their careers? On this show, we introduce you to some of the real estate industry's most influential thought leaders and decision makers. And we talk about what is important to them, how they made critical decisions, who has influenced them, and a lot more. Today's rebroadcast features Bob Sessa, head of real estate at the Employees Retirement System of Texas. Bob is a great guy and also a well-known and highly respected figure in the institutional real estate investment community and has been at Texas Employees for over 20 years. Since he began, Texas ERS's total assets have ballooned to approximately $33 billion, and real estate is now a much bigger piece of the pie at a 12% target allocation. My conversation with Bob occurred in November 2021 and covered a range of topics from Bob's personal background, Texas employees' real estate investment strategy, how Bob approaches manager selection and due diligence, and even a little bit of politics. Our conversation begins with Bob discussing his upbringing in the suburbs of Oklahoma City. Well, first, I have to start with a disclaimer, which I promised you, Bob, I would say. The opinions Bob is expressing here are his personal opinions and not that of his employer. So listen up, everybody. Thanks for joining us, Bob, and we're really delighted to have you. Let's talk about your background for starters. You grew up in Oklahoma. You went to school in New York. As I recall, you swam on the swim team. We have that in common. Tell us a little bit about your background. So is the common part you grew up in Oklahoma or you swam? (laughs) (laughs) The swim team. (laughs) (laughs) I figured as much. I grew up in Oklahoma. I grew up basically in a fairly homogenous suburb of Oklahoma City in a town called Edmond and went to Fordham in the Bronx on a swimming scholarship. So I literally went from one end of the spectrum to the other end. So uh, it had a profound impact on me. I talk about kind of my enlightenment evolution as a person, including views on life due to that experience. And I continue to evolve to this day. And that was a big foundation for that. So it really sparked some inner growth and contemplation in me. I was really exposed to poverty and social justice issues that I really wasn't growing up. And it really got me thinking and made me more aware of the broader issues facing society. We've also talked about how you spent some time near the border of El Paso doing volunteer service. I believe you worked with an organization. You lived in a homeless shelter. Tell us a little bit about that. I, you know, just as we mentioned, talked, you know, grew up in Oklahoma, go to school in New York, and I stayed and worked for five years. So I spent about nine to 10 years in New York And my employer at the time really encouraged volunteer work. So we could spend an hour or two a week doing something in the community. And so it really kind of got me thinking that, you know, I should be getting more involved doing something. And my wife is basically a social worker slash teacher. 
And she had taken a year off when she graduated college to do a year of volunteer service. And so I had never even realized you could do that. You know, I'm kind of going through life in New York. And my joke is I got home one night at 630 and felt like I worked half a day. And I'm like, I got to get out of this lifestyle. You know, I'm kind of getting brainwashed into the New York lifestyle. And I've seen another way of living life. But anyway, so I had been thinking of all this. And I was like, you know, it's kind of time for a change. And I was speaking to my wife and we thought, you know, I wanted to do a year of volunteer work, you know, part for me to kind of focus on my spirituality and part to try to give back, or at least thinking I was going to give back. But in the experience, you're actually getting more out of it than I think you're putting in. But that's, we can talk about that later. We decided it was either now do this, and I wanted to go to business school. So it was a good kind of break to do, or we'd have to do it when we're like 65 and retired. So we thought it was a good opportunity to kind of hit pause on the career track and take this year off and do it. And so we spent a year on the border. As I always say, we're a function of our life experience. And this was definitely an important time and continued that kind of enlightenment evolution for me as a person. And the border was just so powerful from a number of perspectives. The one thing is you saw the love and generosity of the people that literally had nothing. And I mean nothing. I mean, these were people that were homeless, basically, or that were leaving their hometowns to try to find a better way of life. And one example of this, of just the generosity and just the perspective of life that it helped bring to me was there was a teenager, and we would say prayers before each meal. And this one time, a teenager gave thanks for the roof over his head a safe place to sleep and meals and prayed for those without a place to sleep. And I'm thinking this person, this teenager has no shelter. And yet he was so grateful for what that little bit he had. And here I am worrying about all sorts of meaningless things. And he's giving thanks for something that I just take for granted every day. And so it was those kind of experiences that really just, you know, make you appreciate life and really all the things we do have. So it was a good experience for me and also learned how to meditate down there, which has also been very helpful. Mm. Are you still meditating? It's kind of like exercise. It's fits and starts. So I'm back into it now. COVID kind of helped me kind of get back into it. So I'm trying to do yeah. that a little bit more, but it's it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> I learned to meditate as a teenager and was pretty religious about oh. it, but I haven't actually meditated in years now and people are talking about it a lot lately. I definitely strongly recommend it because it does help give you clarity. So when you think about getting back from that experience more than you gave, what are the takeaways and how does that impact your life and the way you live in your profession today? The generosity. There's another example where a mother who had some kids and she finally got a job and she went out and got her first paycheck and she bought Coke and chips for the kids and stuff. And the kids were sharing it with us. And they were saying, no, you know, you got to try this. You got to try that. I'm like, no, 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 this is yours, you know, because, you know, their moms had worked so hard. And the, and I just, the generosity and the love that they showed and the happiness, you know, because it's all relative. And yet sometimes we get so worked up and stressed. And yet we have so much more than probably 90% of the people mm-hmm. or 95% of the people on this planet. And so that was very powerful, just so many experiences like that. And then another thing was I was just able to see the plight of the undocumented people and why would they risk their lives to try to get to the U.S.? Mm -hmm. And you realize it's just pure human survival. Who wants to leave their house, their home, their hometown, unless you have no other choice? And that's basically what they were up against. And so 
you know, it, it really helped me to realize that they're not coming up here to piss us off or to leech, but they're just trying to find a job and just to live life, to just have sustenance. You know, and I really think our border issues are more a function of failed foreign policy than anything else. And we really should be looking for better ways of creating a sustainable economy for our neighbors to the south. I mean, we just can't put up a border. It's just, you know, if you think of your neighborhood, if you're living next to a crack house, you can put up as tall a fence and security as you want, but you're still going to probably have issues. So it's we got to find longer-term, better solutions to that issue. It is an issue that we have to address, but I'm not sure that just putting up a wall is going to create a long-term solution. You touch on two such important issues. One is just the power of gratitude and how, you know, if you wake up every morning and you're thankful for the roof over your head and just being alive and all the things that we can be thankful for, it definitely just is a change in perspective. And also immigration, which of course is a lightning rod political issue. And I think we have such a different perspective. I was in Arizona last week and I was, you know, at one point I was looking at the mountains that are 10 miles from the Mexican border. And it's such a different perspective about immigration if you're looking at that mountain range than when you live in New York City and you're in a melting pot and you know that without immigration, there'd be nobody to do, you know, half the jobs that, you know, you're dependent upon to get through your day. We are a big country and these are such powerful and complicated issues. So thanks for raising them. Let's talk about something that's a little simpler, which is ERS and the real estate strategy. You've accomplished so much with the real estate program there. Maybe just give our audience a little bit of background. So tell us about how it started and how it's evolved. Yes. So I started at ERS as a basically general equities analyst, a public equity analyst. And within a year or two years of joining, the REITs got added to the general indices. So the S&P 500, the S&P 400, et cetera. And when they got added to the indexes, I kind of raised my hand to cover that sector. So that's kind of when we started investing in REITs, obviously in an extremely small way. But a couple of years after that, I started advocating for creating a dedicated portfolio of REITs. So we started off with a domestic REIT portfolio that was launched shortly thereafter. And then we added international REITs probably in 2005 or six. And as part of that discussion, we were also looking at adding alternatives generally. So private equity, private real estate, you know, some of those other hedge funds. And so we decided to go ahead and create a separate real estate asset class. So the re- those dedicated REIT portfolios were housed in the public equity sort of book. And then in 2007 and eight, we went ahead and got approval to create a separate real estate asset class and got an allocation of about 8%, I think it was 7 or 8% to real estate in general, which included the private real estate as well as the REITs. And then we made our first commitment in about 2009 or 10. Oh, perfect timing, Bob. Yes, we got very lucky. We were able to learn a lot from people, so that was very helpful. Yeah, wow, that is perfect and timing. GFC. So, wish I could say we had the crystal ball to uh, time it that perfectly, but <laughs> so the audience probably doesn't appreciate how well your real estate portfolio has performed. I guess I've been just really impressed that you've been early into different strategies, European debt way before others in the market, early into industrial and overweight industrial as we've kind of entered into this COVID period where pricing has just taken off. You've had just an impressive ability to see opportunities early. Share with us a little bit about your secret sauce. What are your valuable resources that you use to kind of figure out where the market, where the puck is going? Sure. There really is no secret sauce. It's really just kind of how I research things. So 
I really try to listen and read to a variety of people and sources to form kind of a mosaic view of the landscape and the world and where things are trending. I really do try to get a sense of secular trends as well as cyclical. And importantly, I'm also trying to look for those views that are counter to what I believe in or what I might disagree with to poke holes in either my thesis or to see what I might be missing. And that, again, is just part of that mosaic and really just looking at a variety of various perspectives and views to help you form your own view. And I will say I'm somewhat constrained by nature so that when something's out of favor, I tend to take deep dives into those areas. So that's kind of the European debt was easy with that. Industrial was a little different. We were studying the property types that really stood out for its cash flow attributes, and we weren't getting a lot of exposure through diversified managers, so we started adding dedicated portfolios. So we got pretty overweight in that. Unfortunately, we took that bet off. But so my uh, clairvoyance only definitely has limits there. But you know, you look at these areas where people may not like or feel are out of favor, and you dive deep. And sometimes it makes sense, and then sometimes the consensus view is correct. So, you know, retail is a great example of that. When everybody was not liking it, et cetera, we kind of took a look and then decided, yeah, you know what, this isn't you know for us. So we're underweight retail for that reason. But we do look at retail deals on a situational basis because we do feel there are some babies thrown out the bathwater because of that, because people will just kind of strike it with a broad brush. So we found some interesting deals there, but it's still got a lot of headwinds in it. What does the portfolio look like today? So we are essentially about 20 to 25% is international with probably 70% of that in Asia and 25, 30% of that is in the UK and Europe. We don't do anything in Latin America. And domestically, we are overweight the residential sector. And I say residential because that includes multifamily, student housing, manufactured housing. We actually have a pretty decent exposure to manufactured housing, which is really difficult to get, but we've been pretty fortunate at finding a manager who's been able to get some source some great deals. So we've got decent exposure there. And senior housing is would obviously be part of that too, but that's a little bit less of a focus. We've been concerned about some of the supply demand issues there and the operational aspect of it. It's, you know, operational intensive. Mm-hmm. So we really don't have much exposure there. So we're overweight multifamily, I mean residential, which includes the multifamily. Part of that was a function of pre-COVID. You know, we were kind of long in the tooth in the economic cycle. Residential typically performs better on a relative basis. You can still lose money, but you'll typically lose less money. And then we're underweight office and retail. Those are kind of structural underweights for us Mm -hmm. and neutral industrial. Oh, and I would say we're overweight REITs right now, too, Mm -hmm. relative to the general benchmark. I mean, to our general trust level targets. Is that because of your investment or because they're up over 50% this year? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's because, again, we did take a look at the relative value compared to the basically general public equities. And, you know, we talked to our CIO earlier in the year and said, this looks like a great, you know, and the way I think about investing, it's all about probability. So kind of going back to your question about the secret sauce, to me, it's all about probabilities because we really don't know what the future is going to hold. But if you've got things more stacked in your favor than against, or the downside is more limited than not, those are probably better bets to take than when they're the other way. So Mm -hmm. in this instance, with the REITs, the relative valuations were at like all-time disparities. They had underperformed the prior year, you know, again, at all-time disparities relative to general indices. 
You kind of have the reopening trade. Debt wasn't an issue like during the GFC. So they you know, had decent balance sheets. And then just kind of the talk about inflation, et cetera. So there was a lot of positives that were, I think, more than offsetting kind of the negatives or the risks. And we so we felt it was a good risk-reward trade-off. And so fortunately, the CIO agreed and we were able to go overweight REITs, which has played out so far this year. But, you know, who knows? Does ERS think of real estate as an inflation hedge? We do kind of incorporate that aspect. I mean, it's one of many factors of why we invest in real estate. And so I would say it's an imperfect hedge. It really depends on how inflation manifests itself. And then within real estate, you've got certain property types that are based, you know, better inflation hedges than others. So I would say yes, to an extent, but you know, and obviously it depends, you know, that famous, it depends. (laughs) Right. So how does ERS benchmark performance in real estate? Are you indexing? Are you using a specific benchmark and, you know, are you using a real rate of return hurdle? Well, I'll start off with the public real estate REITs. That's a simpler process because we have the FTSE Ypres-Navery Global Developed Index. So we use that as our benchmark on the REIT side. And that's very easy because it covers all the basis and whatnot. On the private side, we use the Odyssey Index, which is an imperfect benchmark. It's better than nothing. And it's much better than I think you know for other alternative or illiquid assets. It's pretty decent but it's domestic only, it's core only. And so there is some flaws to it compared to how we manage our book because we do have a non-core exposure and then we also have international exposure, which that benchmark does not include. So it's an imperfect, but that's how you know we look at it and we just you know try to account for it with that in mind. How are you thinking about this incredible rise in pricing for multifamily and for real estate? You know, the real estate that's in favor generally and you know, declining cap rates. And you know, are you worried about the exit cap rates? Are you worried about pricing? And how, if at all, can you protect yourself against rising interest rates and rising cap rates? Well, it really, are we worried about it? You know, I worry about everything and everything, it seems like. The one thing we are monitoring, so on the inflation side, we are watching it closely. I'm not too concerned about it near time because I do think it is, you know, that transitory, that dirty word. It seems like it is a function of COVID coming back, the supply chain disruptions. And so maybe it lasts another 12 to 18 months. But longer term, with the wage growth we've seen and the reconfiguration of the supply chain, which will take longer, that'll take three to five years mm-hmm. and longer, we think that sustained inflation could be here for years because wage inflation is typically stickier, that reconfiguration of the supply chain where you're bringing some of that manufacturing back to the U.S. or nearshoring. Those are going to be more expensive goods. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be an issue. And so on the cap rates and the interest rates, our big thing is as long as the interest rates go up in a measured way and that they don't spike or create a disruption in the market, we should be okay. And, and they're going up for the right reasons. Are they going up because there is strong economic growth, et cetera, then we will be okay. And, and real estate should be okay. And there's been a lot of studies talking about there's usually a very long lag between cap rates and interest rates. Assuming again that the interest rates you know, aren't too volatile or anything like that to create a major disruption or chaos in the market. Real estate should perform fine and cap rates should go up, you know, in a measured way too. 
we are trying to figure out too of like how does the inflation you know come about but that's why we like our resi exposure because we think it would benefit from some inflation like we're seeing now with right so speaking about resi let's talk a little bit about affordable housing obviously a national issue you know is ers an investor on the affordable side and when i talk about affordable i mean a small a not necessarily the government programs but rather you know building or buying housing that's meant for the working population. Yeah. So I was going to say, you know, we define that as workforce housing and we definitely Mm -hmm. have exposure there. We've got some multifamily exposure there. We're in manufactured housing, which I think is a great example of affordable housing. It's actually cheaper than apartments and it allows a very affordable option to live in a community. So we do have exposure through that. And we're looking at adding another fund or two as well, because one of the things about the affordable housing space, that workforce housing space, is the profile, those cash flow profile and attributes. It's a great diversifier to some of our other residential investments in the portfolio overall. And so that's really a part of the portfolio construction is to have that. And so the affordable housing, workforce housing strategy is a great diversifier to have in your portfolio. And I would add affordable housing is not just a U.S issue. This is definitely a global issue. You know, Berlin is looking at potentially nationalizing since it's the city, but taking over some of the housing in that city from the private market. It's a serious issue that we really need to be thinking about. Are there parts of the country where you're more interested in investing in workforce housing than others? I think it really, I mean, we leave that up to the manager. I mean, we are a little worried about some of the rent regulations out there. So you know, the quote on blue versus red states. So we get a little worried about that with government intervention in the market, which can really distort and uh, impact it. I mean, it really comes down to the supply demand and making sure you're in an area that's got good growth, good fundamentals, et cetera. Since these are your opinions, I can ask, what did you think about the national foreclosure moratorium during COVID? Well, it was interesting, but I think it was necessary due to the pandemic. So I think there are definitely times you know, in our lives where you need to do something like that because, I mean, you can't kick people out into the street and they literally would have nowhere to go, you know, especially with everything shut down, people are losing jobs. And so I thought that made good sense for the society and community at large. I mean, we were probably all better off for that because you don't want people running around. There would probably been a lot more crime and social havoc. So I think that was necessary. What really bothered me, though, was when you had national retailers who refused to pay their rent, but you know they could. You know, they had the balance sheets to do that. That really kind of uh, miffed me because I don't think they realize that some of the landowners are indirectly these pensioners. And our pensioners get $20,000 a year. You know, every dollar we earn for them helps. So those national retailers didn't pay. That was a little tough. Yeah, I mean, you touch on how complicated all these issues are, because once you start favoring one group, you know, by definition, you're disadvantaging another and it might affect, you know, the banks or the mortgage and foreclosure and who holds those mortgages. And, you know, there is a ripple effect for every decision. And so it is a very tricky balancing act. But as you said, you know, not taking people away from their roofs was clearly a national priority. Are there other national political issues that are impacting your investment strategy today? I want to, something else on the affordable housing issue is that, you know, we keep talking about one side of the equation, which is the cost, and we're not looking at the other side of the equation, which is the income side. And, you know, we're not spending enough time, you know, understanding why people that have full-time jobs 
are not able to live in the city they work in. And why is that? Why are the companies they work for not paying them enough? I think there was a study out there that some national companies like Walmart and McDonald's have a meaningful amount of employees on government assistance. Why are we subsidizing their payroll? Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to really look at these issues broader and holistically because, you know, we could be creating unintended consequences by creating these affordable housing mandates versus let's, you know, browbeat these companies into paying their employees enough so that they're off government assistance. I mean, there's definitely going to be a segment of the population that needs help, needs government assistance, et cetera. But there's definitely going to be some that don't. And we should be really looking at this issue deeper and broader to make sure we understand all these pieces to it. So are you thinking about, for example, mandating a higher minimum wage at the national level? I mean, that could be part of it. That's another complicated issue. The example I use is, you know, my sons, they didn't need to work in high school. I mean, we had enough money to support them, et cetera. There's other families where those kids actually might be contributing to the family income. But anyway, I don't want my sons getting paid $15 an hour because that's going to give them too much. I wanted them to work. So the bottom line is I want them to work. So I want to teach them work ethic, et cetera. I wanted somebody else to tell them to clean the bathroom besides their mom and dad. And so, you know, they would work, but I don't want them to get, they don't need as much disposable income. They don't need as much income because we're paying for a lot of their expenses. And so if they have too much disposable income, we know what can happen with that versus somebody who's working next to them where they're either they're providing for a family or they're providing for themselves and they need that money to live, to pay for rent, to pay for transportation, et cetera. So it's a complicated issue on the minimum wage, but I mean, we do need to focus somehow on that. I was speaking to somebody on this and they said, maybe we use experience as a way to get around kind of age discrimination. So somebody who is 25 or 30 working alongside, you know, somebody who is 16 or 17 they could get paid more because they're, you know, been in the industry or have 10 years of a work experience or something like that to offset some of those dynamics. And I don't know what the answers are, but the bottom line is that's where we should be debating and spending our time is finding out solutions, trying to understand the unintended consequences of, you know, for various solutions that we think we're coming up with that would solve it. So, Well, as an unapologetic capitalist, which I think you've also claimed that as part of your Title, I am certainly an unapologetic capitalist. What you know, the pandemic has definitely created some supply shortages that should help solve a lot of these issues. And as we've seen all around the country, you know, wages have gone up dramatically just to get people to come back to work. Something like seven million people are still, you know, out of the workforce post-COVID. And, you know, many of them will go back, but they haven't all for sure. And there's probably a couple of million people who can't figure out how to go back to work either because of childcare issues or they're concerned about COVID and, you know, their circumstances have changed. So, but the market will definitely help increase wages, I would think, over the next year or two. Exactly. That's what it should do, right? I mean, can't find your workers, you should be paying them more to draw them in. So, so what, given, you know, doesn't sound like you're terribly worried about long-term inflation or stagflation, you're not worried about declining cap rates across the board, you know, because it should be commensurate with economic growth and rental growth, especially in the sectors that you're invested in. What are you worried about? What's keeping you up at night? Besides neighbors' dogs, <laughs> I would say that I'm not necessarily not worried about inflation because we're definitely monitoring it. So that's something that we're just trying to keep our you know, finger on the pulse of. But I mean, I would say bigger picture and broadly, you know, geopolitics stands out. 
China is definitely kind of beating to their own drum. Xi Jinping has definitely made it clear that Taiwan is part of China. And what happens with they formally kind of make that happen, kind of like what they did with Hong Kong? How does the global community react to that? Domestically, our politics are so extreme. It's very unfortunate. We can't compromise or do anything. I mean, infrastructure is a great example of that. I mean, everybody agrees, especially anybody that travels globally, that our infrastructure needs serious upgrading and not just upgrading, but, you know, repairs to make sure, you know, bridges don't literally fall into the water and stuff. So we can't even compromise on that. And so that just shows you how bad our politics are. And the U.S. is what made us great is that we always do when there does become issues or we see you know, something that's an obstacle, we come and find a compromise solution that just continues to propel us forward. And it seems like that's been missing over the years. And, you know, that's a very big worry for me long term because of what that could entail. I mean, we could end up with a very far right or far left president or people in Congress. And so it's we're just too divided. We don't have critical thinking. We're not really looking at the issues just objectively and trying to solve them objectively. We've got a lot of serious issues out there that need to be addressed that we just kind of either ignore them or kicking the can down the road in a sense that we can't do that with. Yeah, it's really hard to invest long-term when you start to go down that road and think about what could happen, which is why it's good to either be liquid or to maintain control over your portfolio so that if things change, you have some real control. So would you invest in China given the political situation today? Well, I've always been a China skeptic. So I would say, you know, even when China was, you know, very topical and everybody was going in there, I was, you know, when I looked at it and studied it, I had my concerns because you'd hear these stories. And my big worry was rule of law and property rights and just how they did business in general. And to be fair, the U.S. has some cities where it's, you know, (laughs) it's not much different, you know, where, you know, there's probably some graft and whatnot. Guess which city those are. But the bottom line was that the rule of law and property rights and how the game was played really scared me. And so we never did any direct or China-centric funds. Our exposure is only through a global fund or through a pan-Asian fund that might invest in China, but we try to really make sure our China exposure is limited. Now, I believe in the growth story. I believe in the growth of the middle class. I believe in everything they're doing. It's impressive, but I'm not sure of what could happen. And I think what's transpired over the last year where basically the government is limiting how much video game time students can play, you know. So they're, you know, getting their fingers into individuals' lives and they've done it with business too. You know, we've seen many examples with that with the tech companies. And so that scares me. So, you know, just those examples is why we've been very cautious. And I call myself a China skeptic. But going again, you know, believing in the growth and stuff is we try to play the derivative play. So being, you know, in the countries around there that are benefiting from it, the Japans, the Australias, et cetera, and try to take advantage of it that way, derivatively, where we've got the rule of law and property rights on our side, but we can benefit from the growth from China. Let's touch on the question of ESG because it's very much on everybody's mind these days. Does Texas ERS have an ESG policy? I would say yes and no. I would say our policy is probably not as formal as some of the other state plans that are out there. 
and we don't maybe define ESG maybe in the same sense or look at it in the same sense as some of the other state plans out there. But we do monitor the trends in the regulatory environment, which impacts our investments and how that could play out and what the future holds. So in a sense, we do have an ESG policy because we're paying attention to, you know, what is New York doing with zero carbon emissions laws down the road? You know, what London is doing or the UK in general with that. I think California's mandated public companies have a certain number of women and minorities on their boards. So we try to pay attention to that just to make sure we're not, you know, blindsided, but just understand the market as well. But again, I don't think it's in the same vein as maybe what mainstream thinks of as ESG. Yeah. Well, I think mainstream is an evolving issue. I sit on the Global Council for Urban Land Institute. And uh, there are European investors in that group that they cannot bring an investment deal to their IC if it doesn't have a zero emissions program by, you know, 10 years out or even sooner. They have to be able to articulate what it is. And they wouldn't even consider bringing something to their IC without that. So they're just thinking about very differently in a much more concrete way than we are today. Well, let's end up with some rapid fire questions if we can. Tell us, Bob, who was the most influential person in your life? I always think that's an interesting question because, you know, we always think of, you know, the role models, et cetera. But, you know, kind of talking about the earlier part of the discussion, when I've had some life experience and whatnot, but as the Dalai Lama said, and I paraphrase, you know, that people that cause you conflict are good teachers and they help you to grow as a person. And you have to really look at that. So, I've had a lot of influential people in my life from different perspectives, you know, in that sense, many, many people, you know, from swim coaches, teammates, family, friends, coworkers, et cetera. But I would say the one person who's had a pretty impactful influence on me is my dad. He's such a great example of unconditional love and how we should be living our life. He's leaving such a legacy with how he treats people. And that is a gift that I've been fortunate to witness and see firsthand. So, and you have, um, couple of sons. Tell us, what do you most want to communicate to your boys? Yes, I have two sons, Zachary and Benjamin. One just graduated college, the other is a senior in college, so they are definitely young adults. And the one thing I want to communicate is really kind of summed up in this quote, and this is my favorite quote. It's by St. John the Cross, and he says, in the twilight of life, God will not judge us on our earthly possessions or human successes, but on how well we have loved. And I just, I want them to go through life and making sure they don't lose sight of our purpose here on earth. It's very easy to get distracted by what society views as success, but that may not be really what success is in the next life, if that's what you believe in. So, you know, I don't know. I think there is one, you know, you got to hedge your bets. And so that is the one thing I want them to do is just to make sure they treat people nicely and with love and kindness, et cetera. It's a beautiful words. And Bob, what's your favorite place to travel? Gosh, how can you have one favorite place to travel? There's so (laughs) many to choose from. So it really depends on the mood and what we want. Do we want the beach? Do we want the city, the urban? So I'll have to leave it at that. I can't choose just one. Fair enough. You know, we've all spent a lot of time over the last year and a half dreaming about places we'd like to be that we can't go to right now. So I can appreciate there's a lot of them. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate all your thoughts and comments and words of wisdom. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Real Estate Capital. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. 
We put a lot of thought and effort into this show and making sure we bring you insights from real estate leaders that you don't normally find in the mainstream media. So if you're enjoying this show, please remember to follow it on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. We'd also love for you to share it with others or give us a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. Thanks again for tuning in. For more information about our firm, please visit our website at parkmadisonpartners.com.